Well, my name's Sam. Uh, if we haven't met yet, I am the family discipleship pastor here at Pikes Peak Christian Church. Uh, been in that role unofficially for a few months now. Um, uh, officially, rather, for a few months. Unofficially for about a year doing that. Um, and that means that my job is to help all of you, um, adults, students, kids, older adults, young adults, singles, married, anybody in our church, anybody who comes to this church, uh, my job is to help you um, get into a, a place where you can grow to be more like Jesus. Uh, into a community of people who are going to help you uh, to understand what God's word says, what that means for you, and how to say yes to him. Uh, That might be a serving community, it might be a community group like a Bible study or a small group, uh, but my job is to help you find the right place for you to connect and get um, into that that method, that mode of saying yes to God in that way. And and I love what I get to do. Uh, Like I said, I've been doing that for um, about a year unofficially, here for about six or seven months officially. Um, My wife and I have had the the joy, the pleasure of being in our church for uh, 10 years. Um, We love this church. We love to be here. Uh, We've been married 13 wonderful years. They've all been amazing, perfect. Uh, No no challenges ever in those 13 years, right, babe? Yeah, my wife's right down here. Um, She can attest to that. Um, Not really. Um, but we have been married for a little over 13 years, and, um, and uh, we're, we're in a great place. We, we love each other very much. We love, we have a great marriage right now, um, and we're very excited about what God is doing there. In those 13 years, we have had the joy and the privilege and the challenge of having four children. Our oldest is 11. Her name is Grace. She's the only girl. Feel bad for her. You should. <clears throat> Um, our next child is Ben, he's nine, then we have William, who's seven, and Wesley, who's five. It's a milestone year for us, all of our kids start all-day school, we're excited about that uh, this year, I'm very excited uh, to have that happening. Um, and I could tell you a story about any of these kids, right? Uh, I love these kids, they're amazing kids, I could tell you stories about any of them that would make you laugh, I could tell you stories that would make you cry, I could tell you stories that would make you aww right? I could tell you stories about how I've been um, a terrible, terrible parent. I could tell you stories where, by God's grace, I've had moments of brilliance and been an amazing parent with all of these kids. I could tell you tons of stories about these children, but this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about um, just one of my children in particular, and that's William. The reason I want to tell you about William this morning is because out of all of my children, William is the least typical. (laughs) Um, William is, um, and he's an amazing child. He, he's very special. And all of my kids are special, right? I don't have any favorites. I love all of my kids. There's amazing things about each one of them. There are things that make them unique and individual about all of our children. But, but William is the least typical because William just doesn't respond to the world the way most kids do. See, when William was two and a half years old, he was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So he's on the autism spectrum. Now, you might have met uh, someone with autism, you might have met kids with autism, or somebody who has kids with autism, maybe that's in your family, Uh, but if you've been around autism at all uh, for any length of time, you know that when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And it doesn't look the same in other people. It doesn't look the same in all people. In fact, it presents very differently in almost every individual. There are different things about it that come out. Now, there are some similarities, but there are different things about it in every child. One of the things that is unique about William is that William will not have a relationship with you unless you fight for it. (laughs) 
Now, let me explain what I mean. With most kids, most kids are a little bit shy. Most kids are a little bit timid around new adults, around strangers, as they should be. There's a safety factor there. Most kids are not going to just enter into a relationship with adults uh, just blindly, right? If there's an adult that seems like they're in a position of trust, that child will trust them. If there's an adult, though, that, that has a relationship with their parents, they will trust that adult. And most kids think that most adults are trustworthy and they can enter into a relationship with them. I have friends um, who have kids and I have authority uh, in some of their lives. In fact, in our life group, for example, we all have kind of shared authority as parents. We've given that to each other. I get to say no to my friend's children. They get to say no to my kids. We have that relationship. My kids will respect them in that way. My kids know that they have that authority, right? We have that relationship. And that is there, that relationship is there because of the relationship between the parents, right? And so that's pretty typical for kids, but it doesn't work that way for William. (laughs) With William... The relationship is always on his terms. See, some of the things about autism is he doesn't communicate in a typical way, and he doesn't respond to different stimuli the same way that most people do. And so sometimes it's very difficult to communicate with with William. Sometimes it's very difficult to have a relationship with him. He was two and a half before he, I'm I'm sorry, he was almost three years old before he mimicked the words, I love you. He was almost five before he said it to me. It's very difficult. We have to fight for the relationship with William. But here's what I've learned. As I've observed this, as I've been forced to fight for this relationship with my son, as I've been forced to do things his way, to go after him, as that's happened, what I realized is that it's not just kids who are on the autism spectrum. In fact, I would be willing to bet that all of you at some point in your lives have had a relationship that was somewhat severed, that got broken somewhere, and in order for that relationship to be reconciled, you had to do something You had to do something significant. You had to put away some pride. You had to apologize. You had to go after it. You had to fight for that relationship. It just didn't magically heal itself. Is that true? I mean, have you guys had that experience, right? I mean, I know it's early, but we can respond a little bit. There you go. There we go. That helps me a little bit. All right, so we've all had that experience, right? We've all done this, and we have choices, right? When that happens, when a relationship is severed, we have choices. We have the choice to either fight for the relationship and try and repair it, try and restore it, or we have the choice to walk away, right? We have the choice to just abandon it. And what William has taught me is that it is difficult to fight for the relationship, but it's so worth it. And in fact, what God says is that we are supposed to in the church, have this relationship. We're supposed to fight for the relationship. We're supposed to be connected. We're supposed to be one body, represent Jesus to the world through that one body. We're supposed to have deep connections, relationships with one another. We're supposed to fight for unity within the church. And isn't it ironic that sometimes the church is the hardest place to have those relationships? Anybody had that experience? Yeah. So what do we do about it? I mean, how do we do this? Because we're supposed to be unified, we're supposed to be connected, but it can be difficult, it can be a challenge. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. We'll put that text up on the screen for you as well. Uh, We're going to start here looking at this passage because Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says to them, here's how you're supposed to engage one another. Here's how you stay in relationship. Here's how you stay connected, stay unified together. And so we're going to look at this passage and see what we can learn about fighting for the relationship from God's word. Here's what he says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is kind of a longer passage, right? It's five verses, and, and Paul uh, is making a, a lot of different statements here. There's a lot of different um, things that we can look at, and we will. We're going to break that down a little bit here in just a second. But first, I, wanted, I want you to see the overarching picture of what Paul is saying here. Paul is, is really saying that in our relationships, if we're going to be like Christ, since God has redeemed us, all of these things, right, what we have to do first, the very first thing that we've got to do if we're going to fight for a relationship, if we're going to fight to be unified, if we're going to fight to be in community, the first thing we have to do is fight to become more like Jesus. As we look at this passage, he's describing what it looks like to be like Christ, to be Christ-like, right? And so we have to fight ourselves because it's not easy. It's not natural to be this way. It's not natural to be compassionate and loving and humble. It's not natural to forgive as Christ forgave us. It's not natural to do those things. And so we have to fight ourselves. We have to fight our own pride, our own selfishness in order to become like Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, let's look at the very first verse and see what it says. The first thing Paul says here is, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, now we've got to stop right there. And I've and I got to admit to you, when I first read this passage, I read this, this, this um, sentence, right, this first part of this verse, and I read it, and I just kind of skimmed past it, right? And, and it seems like it's the fluff, right? It's almost like we, we kind of come at this passage, and we think, well, God must, have given, uh, we, God must have given Paul a word count for this letter, right? It's like an assignment, right? So, so God says to Paul, hey, I need you to write this letter. It needs to be 5,000 words. And so this is just the fluff, right, that Paul put in there to fill it out, to make it 5,000 words, right? That, that's what's happening. Except that's not, that's not what's happening. There's not a single word in scripture that's not there by design, that's not there intentionally, that's not there because God inspired it to be there. And so these words have significance. And the reason that they have significance, what, what we're meant to see from this is we have an identity. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, There's an identity that Paul's speaking into these people. There's an identity that Paul is saying you have. This is who you are. You are, you're not the people of the world anymore. You're not, uh, in this time he's he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, he's saying you're not Roman citizens anymore. You're not Americans anymore. That's not your primary identity. Your primary identity isn't being a single mom or being a married couple. Your primary identity is this. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And it matters that we get this. It matters that we understand who we are because it's foundational to what the rest of Paul is going to write here. The rest of what he's going to say, we have to get this right. And we know how important it is because in child development, uh, we learn that, that kids that are spoken to in a way that degrades them, that, that tears them down, kids that are spoken to in a way where, where we speak into their lives and say, you're never going to amount to anything. You're always going to be a failure. You're terrible. You're ugly. 
Those things form the identity of that child. And those children who have that spoken into their lives, that have that formed, that identity formed, are much, much less likely to be successful. They're much less likely to do well in school. They're much less likely to succeed at life than the kids who had positive things spoken into them. Kids where we tell them, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're strong, you're smart, you're beautiful, you're courageous. All of those things, when we speak those things into our kids' lives, it forms a foundation that they can stand on where they know that this is true about them and so whatever life comes they can withstand it so guys we got to get this right our identity is that we are chosen people of God holy and dearly loved and it's from that place from that understanding that God has chosen me to be a part of his family. God has chosen me to be set apart and made holy by him. God has chosen me to be one of his beloved children. From that standpoint, I can do what Paul says next, which is this. In 13, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's not an easy thing. And honestly, we have to understand our identity in Christ in order to be able to do this thing. Do you you know what this means? Do you know what he's asking us to do here? I, I mean, have you thought about it at all? To say, what is it that Paul's saying here? Bear with each other and forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you know what that means? Bear with each other. It means I put up with you. It means you put up with me. It means I let things go. It means that when my children leave their Legos out on the floor and I walk across them in the middle of the night for the fifth time this week, I don't lose my mind, but I bear with them and I gently correct them and I gently ask them to do it right the next time and I stay in this place of forgiveness with them. I bear with them. It's not an easy thing. And to forgive as the Lord forgave you? And I can tell you the Lord has forgiven me of some pretty, some pretty significant things, some pretty serious things, some pretty serious offenses. God has every reason to cast me out of his family, to say, you know what, you've had too many chances, walk away. To say, you know what, this thing is too big, walk away, you're done. He has every reason to cast me out, but he doesn't do it. In fact, he sent Jesus Christ to die for me. Because he was so committed to being able to forgive me. That he sent Jesus to take the punishment, to take the place, so that we could be forgiven. And we are commanded to forgive as the Lord forgave us. That's no little thing. And so we have to have this identity found in Christ. And then we begin to do this thing, right? We work on it. We bear with one another. We forgive one another. We forgive as the Lord forgave. And so we've got this thing going now, right? We've got a foundation and we're starting to forgive one another. This is how we fight ourselves, right? We're fighting against our own pride. We're fighting against what I want. We're fighting against selfishness. And we're saying, hey, I'm going to be connected. I'm going to prioritize relationship. And the next thing Paul says is this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. That's a tough one. I don't like this one. I'm just going to be honest with you. Because I want justice. And I want to be right. And I want things my way. (laughs) And oftentimes, in our disagreements, in our arguments, in our conversations with people, 
We tend towards this, I'm right, this is the right way, my way is the best way. These are the things, and what Paul is saying here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What he's asking you to do is say, what's going to be the decision maker? What's going to be the thing that decides what you do? And what he says is it should be the peace of Christ since we were called to peace. So, so when I'm faced with a decision about how do I handle this situation, do, do I fight for what's right? Do I fight for justice? Do I fight for, for these things? Do I fight for my way because my way is the right way and I know it's the right way? Do I fight for those things or do I fight for peace and a restored relationship? What Paul says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Fight for peace. That when you're faced with that decision, you fight for peace. That you fight for reconciliation. And this is, this is calling us to lay down our pride, right? To say, my way is not the only way. My way is not necessarily the best way. My way doesn't have to be done. And because my identity is found in Christ, right? Because I know who God is. Because I know who Jesus is. Because I know he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Because I know that because of him, I can bear with you. I can absorb the things that are coming at me. I can absorb the hardships. I can absorb the sins against me. I can take those things. I can bear with you because I'm found in Christ. And as I do this, I allow peace to start reigning in my heart and I let peace take over and I let peace be the thing that drives my decisions. I let unity be the thing that I strive for. I let this thing, community, gathering together, staying connected with one another, be the priority in my life and it builds on each other and then Paul says this thing next. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Do you know why he says that? Because we forget. We forget what God did. Not not like, man, I can't remember. I think there was this thing that Jesus did a long time ago. I can't remember what it was. I'm not saying we forget like that, right? But we forget the significance of it. We forget how it matters to us personally. We forget how we were changed by it. We forget what it means to us in in our hearts. We forget how significant God's love for us was, how much he saved us, what he saved us from. We forget those things. And what Paul says is you can't forget it. You have to remember, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. It has to stay there. Let the message of Christ be absorbed by you. Let Let it soak in. Stay in this place. Stay deep in this. Don't ever forget what God has done for you. Don't ever forget who Christ is for you. Don't ever forget these things. Because when you stay connected to the word, when you stay connected to the message of Christ, it reinforces the identity of who you are in Christ. And as that foundation is solidified even more, you can absorb more. You can bear with one another even more. You can forgive even more. And you can let peace reign even more. And so you go back to the word to grow and become more like Jesus so that your identity is found in him even more. So that you can bear with one another even more and forgive even more so that peace can rule in your hearts even more. Do you see? It's a cycle. And we forget. <clears throat> and we need to remind one another. I'll go back to William for a second. And the foundation that was built in his life, William had an amazing preschool teacher. Her name was Carrie Wirt. She still works in District 3. And Carrie taught William this thing. Every day when William would come to preschool at three years old and at four years old, 
William would come to preschool and Carrie would say over and over to William, get down on his level, look him right in the eye. William is amazing. Every day, several times a day, Carrie would say to my son, who couldn't speak, who couldn't talk back, who, who wasn't typical, who couldn't respond in a normal way, who would throw fits, who would have poopy diapers, who, who was, was quite honestly a non-typical child, who, who can be very sometimes difficult to have a relationship, and she would get down in front of him and say, William is amazing. Four years later, at seven and a half, if I brought William in here, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, William is, he would shout back, Amazing! (laughs) And we've done that over the years. Reminded him every day that William is amazing. That William is loved. That William is cared for. We have to be reminded of it because it forms our identity. We're no different. We've got to remember who we are. And as the message of Christ dwells among us richly, we remember who we are. Now notice that it doesn't say, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you do your Bible study in the morning and as you come to church and hear the preacher. That's not what it says. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. As you stay connected to each other, as you talk to each other about God's word, as you talk to one another about what God's done in your life, as you correct one another, as you say to one another, look, there's this thing that I'm struggling with, I need your help with it. Or as you say to someone, hey man, there's this thing I see in your life and it's dangerous and I want to correct you before it becomes an issue. As we do those things, we teach and admonish one another and the message of Christ dwells among us richly. We were meant to be in a community, speaking to one another the words of Christ, speaking to one another what Christ is doing, what Christ has done in our lives. We were meant for it. It's implied in this passage. So we've got to stay together. We've got to do it together. Guys, this is the reason uh, that we started a couple weeks ago this men's um, group. We meet at 7 o'clock in the morning at the coffee bar here at the church on Sunday mornings, right? And, and, And there's no agenda. All we're doing is we're reading through Scripture together and going, what did you see? What did you see? Well, what did God say to you? What did God say to you? Do you know why we're doing that? Because of this right here. We are admonishing one another, we're teaching one another, we're hearing from one another, and as we do that, we're reminded of who we are in Christ so that we can be more Christ-like. We need to be in community with one another. Now, Paul's going to go on here from this point. And Paul's going to go on and he's going to talk about some very specific ways that this plays out. Through the rest of chapter 3, the first part of chapter 1, he's going to unpack this for us and he's going to say, look, this is how you fight to be more like Jesus in the context of your marriage. He speaks to husbands, he speaks to wives. This is how you fight for um, to become more like Christ in the way that you parent and in the way that you are a child of parents, right? In your relationship with your parents. He speaks to parents and kids. And then he's going to speak to slaves and masters. We can translate that to bosses and employees, right? And he gives us all of these specifics along the way of these things that we're supposed to do to fight to be more like Jesus in these different relationships. And then we come to 4-2, and after he's given us the groundwork of saying fight to be more like Jesus, he's given us some specifics of what that looks like. He gives us specifics of what that looks like in different relationships. Then he comes to this point and he says this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful 
and thankful. See, I can work on me all day long, and I can try to be like Jesus all day long, and I can try to fight against my own pride, and I need to do that. Paul has already made it clear that I need to fight my own pride. I need to fight my selfishness. I need to fight for my desire for things my way so that I can be more like Jesus, so I can be connected to the people around me. I need to fight myself, but here's the thing. I'm not the only one in this fight. Scripture is clear. John 10.10 says this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John, uh, 1 John 5.8, or 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in Ephesians, it says it this way, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you hear what is being said here? Across scripture, you have an enemy who hates the idea of unity, who hates the idea of the body of Christ, hates anything that has to do with Jesus, hates anything that has to do with representing God. He hates it, and he will try to destroy it. He will try to break it apart. He will try to devour you. He will come after it and destroy it any way he can. And so we have to fight not only ourselves, but the enemy that's coming after us. And the way that we do that is by devoting ourselves to what? To prayer. That's what Paul says. And so we fight for it. We fight for each other in prayer. And I don't mean that we we pray for one another the way that Christians are sometimes guilty of praying for one another. Right? Hey man, I'm struggling with this thing. Oh, let me pray for you. Dear God, I pray that you would just provide this thing, God, and whatever you decide, whatever your will is, God, we just trust you with that. Amen. Right now, now I'm not saying that we don't that we don't pray God's will, right? But but guys, that that's a pacifying prayer, right? This is not what Paul had in mind when he says devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer. Here's what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer, especially in the context of fighting for the relationship. I, ha- I have a good friend who's going through a divorce. She found out that her husband was unfaithful to her many, many times. And instead of just walking away, she made a commitment to fight for her marriage, to fight for the relationship. And after he had moved out, she prayed for him every day for 90 days. That's what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer. It, it looks like praying this way. Not, not, praying, not praying these simple little prayers, God, we just trust you with this thing and moving on, like pacifying prayers. That's not what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer. What it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer is that when you find out that your friend has cancer, when you find out that your friend is, is going possibly to lose their life, when you find out these things, you get on your knees and you don't pray, God, please do whatever you're going to do. You say, God, we trust you. We know that you're God. We know that you're sovereign. We know that you can do all things. But here, God, God, please hear my cry. Please don't take this person from me. God, please move on my behalf. God, please do something in this moment. Please, God, we need a miracle. We're desperate for you to move. That's what it looks like to devote yourselves to prayer. It's the way Jesus prayed for us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he prayed so adamantly, so desperately, so heavily, so hard, that he sweat blood. I've never sweat blood when I'm praying. But that's the call. 
to devote yourselves to prayer, to fight for one another in that way. And guys, we need to fight for one another because there's an enemy who wants to destroy us. And isn't this what Jesus did for us? I mean, didn't Jesus fight for us? Didn't, didn't Jesus come just to fight for us? I mean, I mean isn't this what, what God did? Isn't this what the gospel is all about? Isn't this the whole reason we're here? Is because Jesus Christ fought for us to have a relationship with God the Father. Here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus left the glory of heaven, all of the treasures of heaven, the beauty of it, all of the wonders, left that place, left in, in the perfect community that he had with God the Father. He was right there with him. He was in heaven with God, and he left it. Not to come start a religion. Not to come start a church. He left it so that he could mend the relationship between us and God that had been broken, and it cost him his life. He fought to the death so that we could be unified with God and when we find our identity in Christ so that we could be unified for, to each other. He fought to the death for unity. Are we willing to fight for it? Are we willing to fight ourselves, our own pride, our own selfishness for it? Are we willing to fight for it in prayer, to devote ourselves to that, to being watchful? Are we willing to fight for it? You might be thinking, Pastor, you, you, you don't know. You don't know my situation. You don't know how broken it is. You don't know how much I've been wounded. You don't know how difficult it is for me to trust. You don't know what's going on with me, and you're right, I don't know. And I don't know the struggles that you face personally. I don't know how hard it is for you personally, but I know this. Where it seems like there is no way, Jesus Christ has made a way. The reason I know that is because about a year ago, I was standing in my house, the top of the stairs, and there's William playing. I'm trying to get him to engage me. He has no interest in talking to me whatsoever. Always on William's terms. I begin to pray. God, God, I can't even talk to my son. How am I going to show him who you are? How am I going to tell him about you? How, how am I going to tell him how great you are? How am I going to tell him about the relationship that he needs to have with you? How am I going to tell him? How am I going to have a relationship with him as an adult? What does this look like? God, I don't know what to do. How do I do this? And you know what God said to me? Immediately in my head were the words of this song. Where there is no way, you make a way. Where no one else can reach us, you find us. Jesus Christ has made a way for you to be reconciled with God and reconciled with each other.